Well, our reading this morning uh, is from Mark chapter 10. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we took a break for a while in the, the fall and through Advent, uh, and we're back in Mark, and we're on the, the second half of Mark, which we've talked about a couple times, has Jesus traveling from the northern part of Israel near the Sea of Galilee uh, down to Jerusalem, and then, of course, uh, his final week in Jerusalem, which ends with his crucifixion and resurrection. And so the last, the last half of Mark is really just a couple of weeks, and Jesus is on his way down from, again, Galilee down to along the Jordan River to Judea, which is the region with Jerusalem in it. So I give all that as context just because um, you'll, you're going to hear some of these uh, places in the reading. So let's pick up in Mark chapter 10, verse 1. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. It's God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, um, Marriage and divorce. It's actually not a sermon about marriage and divorce. Uh, so we're going to need some wisdom. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would speak to us by your word. Uh, we know that everything you've given to us in it is for our benefit. That we might learn what it means to glorify you and enjoy you forever. So we ask that you would speak to us by it. In the power of your spirit. And in the name of your son. Amen. Have you ever been involved in a conversation, maybe between two other people or two groups of people, and you just thought to yourself, I can't believe we're talking about this? You know you have, especially when it's an argument. Those of you with more than two kids, well, two or more kids know exactly this, but we all know it. We've all been in those conversations. I remember a few years ago, in campus ministry, I was <clears throat> in a van with a bunch of my students on the way to a uh, conference, a, a, a retreat, and um, they got into a conversation about what is the best Taylor Swift album. And I thought to myself, I can't believe we're talking about this. That I just made a bunch of enemies, I think, by admitting that I don't like Taylor Swift, but um, that's all right, I know. Those of you that are millennials, maybe you can still hear me. Uh, this is what is happening here in this passage. Jesus ends up in a conversation that he doesn't think is a good one, that he, th that he thinks is a bad conversation. Um, it is a conversation about the law, 
And the particular law in question has to do with marriage and divorce, but it is really about what you do with the law. And so we really have two points this morning, what it, what it means to undermine the law, the law of God, and what it means to love the law of God. Just those two points. Uh, so the Pharisees come to Jesus. He's on his way, heading towards Jerusalem, and so, some come, on, you know, come up to meet him while he's on his way. And they bring up a, discuss, a debate that, is, uh, that was, we know actually a lot about, uh, about how divorce works or when it's allowed. And the, it's funny, we actually know a good bit about the background of this from uh, Jewish sources. So the debate is about this particular verse in Deuteronomy 24. So Deuteronomy 24.1, I know. Whenever I mention Deuteronomy, I know it's just right there on the top of your head. Uh, but Deuteronomy 24.1 talks about how, uh, how if a man finds an indecent thing, that's the phrase, uh, in his wife, he can give her a certificate of divorce. Now, what we do know is a century, uh, uh, no, not a century, a decade or two before Jesus, there were two very famous rabbis that had a debate about what an indecent thing meant. So there's a guy named Shammai, and then another guy named Hillel. Uh, as a little, little bonus for you, the, Hillel was very famous uh, and goes down in Jewish history as one of the greatest rabbis. In fact, to this day, in most colleges or universities, if there's a Jewish center, it's named Hillel uh, after this guy. And as an extra bonus, his son is a guy named Gamaliel who shows up later in, briefly in the book of Acts but who was the teacher of a guy named Saul, who becomes the Apostle Paul. <laughs> um, so, weirdly, there's all these interconnections here. But, uh, but this debate had happened between Shammai and Hillel. And Shammai took the view that an indecent thing specifically meant marital infidelity, sexual infidelity. In other words, it was a very narrow, very specific thing. Hillel took the opposite view of that to say to apply it very broadly that if a husband and it was always the husband found something he didn't like something inappropriate that he or that he thought wasn't appropriate about his wife that he could divorce so in other words there was pretty much any reason that he was upset about with his wife he could divorce okay all this is background and maybe you you know maybe you don't need all of that it's kind of fascinating though Jesus refuses to take a side. Now, it's not that Jesus doesn't have an opinion on the matter, because if you go to the parallel account of this in Matthew, as in Matthew 19, it's longer, and so Jesus says more. And he actually admits he agrees with Shammai, right, that the only, the only thing that it was talking about was, was infidelity. But Jesus' point, both in Matthew 19 and here, is crystal clear that y'all are having a dumb argument. The point, of course, isn't that, this is, that we don't need to know the answer to the question, but that they in some way were fixated on it in a way that was a problem. In fact, the, the, the whole reason that this law is there is because of their hardness of heart. 
Ooh, hardness of heart. That's an interesting phrase. A couple weeks ago, we talked about a phrase uh, when Jesus calls them a faithless generation, the, the people around him. And we talked about how that had a particular sting to it, referencing the, the generation that had come out of Egypt. Because uh, they had seen these miraculous works of God and yet still wouldn't trust him. And hardness of heart has a similar type echo. It, it's a phrase that comes up in the Bible uh, not infrequently, but it goes back to Exodus also. Except in Exodus, the first guy whose hard heart we hear about is Pharaoh. Jesus is saying, You've got a heart like Pharaoh, your oppressor. Later on, we hear about it. In fact, uh, Psalm 95 is a famous moment reflecting on the generation that had come out of Egypt. And in Psalm 95, it says, Today, if you hear my word, don't harden your heart like you did when we were in the wilderness. So this is a pointed phrase. It's not, it's not merely just saying that, look, guys, God knows that you are going to have a hard time following it. No, it's pretty specific. It's pretty pointed. It's to say, God knows that you don't actually want his law. You don't actually want to listen to him. That's the whole reason that, that any allowance for divorce is even there. But it's not just that, right? It is them. It's not just the reason it was given, but their hardness of heart, which continues. Again, I don't think that this is unique to Israel itself. This is certainly the human condition more broadly. But Jesus is, is, is making this pretty pointed then, that they are more concerned with the loopholes that might exist in the law than with following the law. Uh-oh. Because we like escape routes too. I mean, don't you like to know when you can get away with things? I do. I, I like to know exactly, you know, what I can do and when I can get away with different things. This is what we like to do. We like to identify all the exceptions to the rule. This is, uh, uh, well, it's like, uh, we, well, in our house, we call this the velociraptor mentality, right? You're testing the fence systematically. Where, where is there a hole in the fence? Uh, we're, we're all looking for that, right? Where, where can we get out? We, and we all do this, right? You know, and there, there's, there's no mistake why marriage is the particular issue that comes up here, right? Because marriage is hard. If you've been married for five minutes, you know that. I mean, this isn't easy. Every marriage has bumps in the road. Some marriages, it seems like you're just off-roading it the whole way, you know? I mean, this is, you know, the, they all have their bumps, right? So no wonder, right, that some of them are thinking, okay, what's my out? if this doesn't work. But we do this, of course, with other laws as well. We know we're called to give generously. 
but we all want to know what the loopholes are, right? Do it, okay, am I supposed to get tithe off of my pre-tax money or not, right? About, what about the gift I got from my grandmother for Christmas? You know, like I, I'm not going to tell you the answers to any of those questions. Um, I, by the way, I don't know what any particular family gives in the church. By the way, just, but we all love that loophole, right? Like, well, can't I, you know, kind of get away with it? How about this one? Speaking the truth in love. Sometimes the truth is awkward, right? I mean, if it's going to really make this an awkward situation, do I, do I have to do that? Uh, how about, do I have to be loving if this person doesn't treat me kindly? Right? I mean, uh, I, I, would, I, would, I would be more kind if they would be kind to me. <laughs> we all want the loopholes, right? It's easy enough, I, I suppose, for us to follow the law when it's not that costly. Uh, even more so when it maybe seems to be to our benefit. It's much harder when it gets costly. Costly, I mean, not just in terms of our finances, but to our ego. Right? It's much harder to accept the law for what it is. But here's the thing. I think we all recognize the shameless loophole finders. We know that mentality, and maybe there's areas of our life that we are shameless loophole finders. <laughs> um, maybe some particular aspect of your life that you're that. And you know what I mean by the shameless loophole finder. The person that, you know, it makes no apologies about trying to find any way around conforming to it. And the only reason they conform at all is because probably of the punishments that would, that would follow, right? Um, but there is another way of being a loophole finder that isn't shameless, it's shameful. As I say, it's full of shame. It is the desire to find the loophole so that you're never wrong. This is the Pharisees. The Pharisees loved God's law in one sense, in the sense that they loved it for their own ends. They wanted to be right. They wanted so desperately to be above any accusation, above any claim that they might be in the wrong ever. And I'm afraid that a lot of Christians are in this boat. That we want to follow, to the degree to which we want to follow the law, we want to follow it, but nobody can ever say um, that we were guilty. In other words, we want to be able to prove that we are good enough. You know the, you know the old question, um, some of you maybe haven't dated in a while. Some, maybe some of you are in the middle of that. Maybe some of you want to be dating. Um, you know, there's that old question in dating, you know, how far is too far? Uh, that's a treacherous question, isn't it? 
It's not because it doesn't need an answer, right? Got to figure out what are the appropriate boundaries. But because the way that it's asked, the way that, that, that we frame that question is how much can I get away with and still be right? How can I still be blameless and get as much as I want out of this situation, out of this other person? It would be an entirely different thing to think, how do I honor God? How do I honor this other person with my body? That would be a very different way of framing that question to try to actually figure out what are appropriate boundaries. But you can see how it's a different orientation. Rather than trying to find the loophole and and be able to say, hey, you can't blame me. (laughs) It is one that's focused on God. See, this is the problem that we face with the law is that while the law itself is good, to us, to proving that we are good enough, it is always bad news. If what you want from the law is to prove that you're good enough, the Bible's only got bad news for you. If what you want to do, the, the, way that the, the biblical term for this is to justify. If you want to justify yourself, it's always going to be bad news. And that's what Jesus picks up on with the Pharisees. And it's what has been a problem in the church ever since. Is this desire to prove that we're good enough. And what's most sinister about this is that many Christians, they can accept that, that I'm not good enough to become a Christian. And yes, when I, when I get to know Jesus, right, when I come to the faith, when I receive Jesus, I am justified. That is to say, Jesus, you know, I'm forgiven for everything that he's done. You might even understand, it's not just that you're forgiven, it's that you're seen as acceptable to God because Jesus gave his life, which was good enough for you. But we think that we're supposed, so repentance is the start, confessing our sin is the start, but then we think, but from then on, we're supposed to be the kind of people that don't need to repent. But that's the litmus test. Because the gospel teaches us to see repentance not merely as a one-time thing to enter into the kingdom of God, but as an ongoing reality. If you're trying to be the kind of person now as a Christian who never has to repent, you are barking up the wrong tree. You are running after a fool's errand. I'm not saying that we don't seek to follow the law. We'll talk about that more in a second. But if you seek to do it in a way that then makes you the kind of person that no longer needs Jesus, you have forgotten the gospel. This is why repentance is freedom. It's an act of freedom to admit I'm not going to be good enough. The, the mark 
of somebody who's getting the right grip on the gospel is that they learn the freedom of repentance, of not having to prove that they are good enough all the time, but can freely admit that they fail a lot. Which I guess gets us to the second point. of lo- that, that, So undermining means looking for these loopholes, but the second point is, that, is the, what it means to love the law. And so Jesus goes on, starting in verse 6, and says, you know, look, he, he had said, you got this command because you were, had hard hearts. But he goes on from there and says, that was not what God intended marriage to be anyway. He goes on, you know, because they're talking about marriage, and he quotes from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, kind of weaves together uh, a couple of lines out of Genesis 1 and 2 uh, to talk about the point of marriage. And Jesus' point in going back to that is to get back to the heart of what this thing was supposed to be. Jesus isn't saying the, lo- the, the, the loophole, the, the concession to sin isn't important or you don't need to know it. It is important. But if all you're thinking about is how do we deal with the concessions and not actually thinking about how do we nurture a healthy marriage, how do we actually deal with each other in marriage, uh, how do we we celebrate the beauty of it, then you've lost focus. It is to some degree a matter of focus, isn't it? And whether you've gotten to the good thing, the beautiful thing that is at the heart of the law, or whether you have gotten distracted by all the concessions that have to be made in a sinful world. There is a, you know, theologians have kind of broken down the Old Testament law. Let's be honest. When you go to the Old Testament, there's a lot of laws. I mean, even the New Testament has a lot of moral teaching in it. And I know that that's very confusing. The way theologians have talked about this, though, is really helpful. Uh, They talk about it as three kinds of laws in the Old Testament. And really at the core of it is the moral law. And we know this because when God makes his covenant with, with Israel on the mountain, the core of it is the Ten Commandments. I mean, that's what gets written on the stone. That's really at the heart of it. That is the moral law. Now, most of what follows, most of the other laws are in other categories. They're related to the moral law. They're not just made up out of nowhere, but they are extrapolations of it, applications of it. So one of those sets of laws is called the ceremonial law, and that has everything to do with the temple and the tabernacle and worship and sacrifices and all and there's a bunch of things that are connected to the moral law, but it's a lot of, but, you know, the whole thing is essentially symbolic. And so we don't really do any of that stuff <laughs> uh, as Christians, right? Because we, we know that Jesus has come and the symbolism has been realized in him. There's another set of laws, and this is a lot of them, that are the civil law. Because Egypt, because, um, Egypt, <laughs> not Egypt, Israel, is the only theocracy, right? the only divinely appointed society, right? political system and all that, that has ever existed. Um, and what the civil law does is take the moral law 
and apply it to Israelite society. That's why all of the civil laws, we, we can learn a lot from. They're still applicable in a sense, but they do need to be sort of understood in their context. So one obvious illustration is uh, there's one law that says you have to build a fence or a wall around your rooftop. I don't know any Christian that has ever thought that they need to build a fence around their roof. The reason is, in ancient Israel, uh, it was a hot, arid climate. So at night, people would go up to the flat roof of their house where it was cooler once the sun went down, where it was cooler. In fact, they would often sleep up there. So guess what? It was dark. If you're wandering around in the dark, you might fall off the roof, right? I mean, in other words, it was a way of honoring the life, right? Like, like taking care to make sure that people don't just get haphazardly injured around you. Okay, so you got to understand the context. Some of, you know, so the divorce teaching is part of this civil law. It recognizes that we are going to sin. That not everybody is going to live this out, you know, perfectly, in fact, some people are going to so significantly violate the bond of marriage that it would be monstrous to demand someone stay in a marriage with somebody who's violating it. That makes sense? So that's all part of the civil law. Again, there's a lot to learn in that, but it, doesn't necess- it, it has to be applied. It has to be kind of unpacked. Whereas the moral law is simply... Do not bear false witness. Have no other gods. So the the civil is kind of this unpacking. I know that can get a little complicated. I'm sure, you know, there's plenty of places as you read different things, there's stuff to unpack. That takes some time. It takes some work. I'm happy to talk with you about, if you have questions about particular laws, all that kind of thing, I'm happy to work through that stuff with you. But what Jesus is trying to say is, look, when you get to the moral law, the thing that really has enduring, ongoing consequences, no matter the situation, what we get, what we get there is the very heart of God. That all that, that stuff, you know, that's kind of summarized in the Ten Commandments, that's summarized in the commands to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The, that, what's summarized there is the very heart of God. And what Jesus is, 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 is trying to tell them, trying to show them is, why have you focused on the peripheral issues so much and forgotten the beautiful thing at the center of it? And of course, the answer is because they are trying to be good enough. They are trying to justify themselves. And so they're focusing on what can be gotten away with. What are the, what are the escape hatches? Where can, they, where can they claim to still be righteous? And Jesus is telling them, look, when you focus on, what, on the beautiful thing that God is and the beautiful things that God has given Okay, yes, there will be occasions where divorce is a question. But it would, you, will be, you will spend your time much more profitably <laughs> by thinking about how good it is. 
I mean, it reminds me of Psalm 19, right? Psalm 19 is a very famous psalm. Uh, maybe not quite as famous as Psalm 23, but it's up there. And there's a lot of lines, if you've been around the church for long, that are in it that you'll recognize. But it's the, it's the psalm that begins, the heavens declare the glory of God. And it spends the first you know, six or so verses uh, talking about how the world, how undeniable it is that God is great when we look around his world. But it moves from there to talk about how we then know his character in the law. So this is, and this is where it goes. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. I wonder how often we think that about God's law. That it's reviving, that it's wisening, that it's delightful, enduring, that it is sweet. Jesus is putting his finger on it, right? The more that you want the law to make you good enough, the more bitter it's going to be to your mouth. But the more that you see in it the beauties of God's character refracted, the more powerful, the more amazing, the sweeter it will be. It is, uh, it's hard to get our hands around that. You know, Jesus goes on in, in verses 10 through 12 to talk about how, look, you know, if we don't take seriously what the beautiful thing that God has made, we will, we will be led into deeper sin and we will cause others to sin as well. But what he's calling them to remember is how beautiful the law itself is because the law is God's heart. It is, if we know God's heart, that's what we are, that's the person we are hoping to be with forever, isn't it? That's actually the goal of Christianity. The whole goal is to see God, to know him, to be with him, to be in his presence. That's why, you know, very little of the gospel makes a lot of sense if all you're looking to do is get off the hook. I mean, there is forgiveness, a profound forgiveness in the gospel, but it's not just about being able to get off the hook. It's about where you're going. That's, that's why C.S. Lewis says, we're afraid sometimes that heaven is a bribe. That if we make it our goal, we shall no longer be disinterested. As I say, sometimes it sounds like the gospel is about, you know, getting out of jail free. But heaven offers nothing that a mercenary soul can desire. It is safety to tell the pure in heart that they shall see God, for only the pure in heart want to. 
And he's not talking about someone who's perfect. He's talking about those who've delighted in God's law because they know that's the character of God. And you see, that changes our orientation to the law, doesn't it? Rather than seeing it, again, even as a, somebody who's already a Christian, as proving that you're good enough, we see it as proving how good God is. The law, in the right perspective, is not about how good I am, but how good God is. And that changes my orientation to it. It frees me up to admit that I fail all the time. But it also pushes me onward, deeper into the law, to want to be, to work hard at being someone who lives like God calls us to, because I want to be like him. And his law rewards that kind of reflection. When, it's a re- when we're reflecting deeply on who he is, it really is profound. That doesn't make it easy. But, you know, like any great work of art, it rewards deep reflection. Have you ever just, uh, I don't know if you, if you all know the T.S. Lewis's famous poem, The Wasteland. But if you try to read that without somebody to help you, a teacher, a professor, somebody else, to help you with all, it seems bewildering. But if you dig in, you, found profi- you find profound beauty. Or if you've ever listened to John Coltrane's album, A Love Supreme, if you just try to put it on in the background, it is awful. It really is a work of art that demands your attention. And if you won't give it, you will hate it. You can't just put it on in the background and just listen to it. No, you've got to sit and listen to this thing. But when you do, when you give it that attention, oh man, buckle up. You're going for a ride. And God, I mean, that's just a little picture of what God's law is like, right? If we will dig in and dig deep into the character of God, then we will find riches there that we never dreamed of. And marriage itself is a good illustration of this. We've got to talk a little bit more about marriage because that is the illustration at work here, right? But marriage is a, is a good illustration of this, right? Jesus takes us back to the beginning before sin ever existed. Back to Adam breaking into song when he finds the wife God has given him. It, it's, you know... It's in a, the whole deal about marriage is it's a reflection of God's character because God is relational from eternity past, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God wasn't alone. God was relational in and of himself. And he made us that way. And that's why, look, uh, it's so easy to get distracted around sexual ethics when we talk about marriage. And there is a reason why the Bible talks about it as the only context, appropriate context for sex, right? Uh, is because it's meant to be this profound, unbreakable union. And we fool ourselves when we think we can have that without actually committing ourselves. 
All that is true, but the point is that even sex is an expression of a deeper reality of what it means to love and to be loved, of to experience profound communion with someone else. I mean, that's why it's a beautiful thing. But we do see, of course, that it doesn't always work out. I mean, after the fall, there are lots of problems. I mean, even at the very moment of the fall, you can see Adam and Eve's relationship starting to crack. Uh, So there are reasons for divorce. I mean, like we said, in, in Matthew 19, Jesus talks about there is infidelity. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about abandonment. And uh, certainly most contemporary interpreters, and I would include myself in this, you know, think of abuse as a kind of abandonment. So there are occasions for this. But they are because the thing has already been shattered. Because the covenant has already been broken. We also see in a weird way, the more that we understand what marriage is for, we also understand why singleness is so important and even blessed in the New Testament. It's a thing that evangelicals often say in very murmured tones. Um, Because rightfully, we've, you know, have wanted to celebrate the good thing that marriage is. But the thing is that Paul also really clearly in 1 Corinthians 7 talks about how amazing and what a real opportunity singleness is. Now, there's a lot of bad teaching about singleness in the church, and I can't possibly undo all of that this morning. And maybe I'd be foolish to think I'm the authority on it. But we do know what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 7 is that there is a more profound relationship that even from the very beginning was pointing towards. And it is the love of God for us. And that the opportunity when you're single, while you're single, is to lean into that. That your identity is not in someone you're married to. (laughs) But it's in Jesus. Because that's also true even if you are married. But if you are married, you can tend to forget that. And so Paul blesses that. What's even weirder is when Jesus in Matthew 22 talks about marriage. And they ask him about a situation where a woman has been remarried several times. And they ask him, who is she going to be married to in heaven? Uh Uh-oh. And then Jesus says, uh, there won't be marriage in heaven. Well, that's uncomfortable. Now, okay, listen. Jesus does not unpack a lot. Of, there's a lot we don't know. We should, probably shouldn't, you know, pretend that we understand all the nuances of what he's saying. But what he is pointing at is that marriage itself is a picture of that more profound relationship that awaits of being with God. Which means the degree to which we're like, oh no, Jesus couldn't mean that, probably exposes the degree to which we have a lack of imagination about how profound it will be to be with God. 
I don't have all the answers about Matthew 22, by the way. But I do know this, that to be with God, to enjoy his character fully revealed, to see him face to face, will be better than life. It will be better than anything I've ever imagined. And the law is like God's character refracted. So again, if you want to use it to try to prove that you're good enough, to try to justify yourself, it's always going to be bad news. Always will. And to the degree which you're using it that way and it doesn't is the degree to which you're deluded. The degree to which you're not being honest with yourself about what on earth is going on. But when we see the law as expounding God's character, his faithfulness, his love, the way that he is towards us, then we see profound riches. It's at that point that the law can become sweet, that it becomes powerful in our imaginations, that it's at that moment that we see just how profound the work of Jesus is to take us as those who have been condemned from the law, by the law, taken us out of our sin and our condemnation and brought us into the presence of God, made us acceptable to him. First by exchanging his life, but then by his spirit, teaching us to love who God is so that one day we can enjoy seeing him face to face. Amen. Lord, we pray that you would teach us to love your law. Pray that you would teach us to shy away from trying to prove that we are good enough, but instead to love you, to love what we see of your character in all its brilliant color through your law. Teach us to love it because we love you, because it helps us understand how deep your love is for us, how far Jesus has gone on our behalf, and what profound things await us. We ask in Christ's name, amen.